The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heinrich. Episode, I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Ross Pant, who is filling in for our regular guest, Bishop Daniel Dolan. Your Excellency, thanks so much for joining us to talk about Catholic history today. Oh, nice to be here. Your Excellency, in the last episode, uh, Bishop Dolan discussed the the sort of lead up to World War One. We talked about the after effects of the revolution, the the institutionalization of things via Napoleon and the military uh, outreach that, that poisoned these other countries. And now we're going to live with the effects of that. And we have three major themes that we want to cover today. The first is the secularization of society. The second is the, the final overthrow of, of ca- the last gasp, the last bits of energy of Catholic order. And finally, where this leads us, if you get rid of Catholicism, the vacuum doesn't stay in place. Something comes in to fill that vacuum, and you have universal democracy as the new substitute religion, uh, led by led and designed by Freemasons. And I suppose we can we can start at the very beginning of those three themes with the secularization of society. And I want to quote from uh, a French historian, Ernest Lavisse, and. Mm-hmm. Reading, reading this, it's, it's horrifying to read this, um, but you realize these ideas were floating around uh, at this time period, and this is really what people think. This isn't a satire. This isn't someone trying to be ironic. This is really the foundation of their secular society. Mm-hmm. So he says, to be lay well, give his date. So date him, because that's even more uh, important. So he, his life life span is 1842 to 1922. So he's probably writing this at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. He says, to be lay-minded is to refuse religions which pass away, the right to govern humanity which endures. It is to combat the spirit of hate that religions inspire and that has been the cause of so much violence. Uh, he goes on. To say, to be lay-minded is not to refer to a judge reigning above this life in an effort to satisfy those who weep. I suppose, in one sense, he might be forgiven for not have witnessing World War I or World War II, uh, in which was hardly fought over uh, religions which have caused so much violence and so much damage, as he alludes to here. But it is, it is clear uh, that he is trying to put forth this notion that uh, we are, we're done with religion, and we have this great new religion of humanity. Yes. Yes, that is the, the secularist 
program, the secularist dream, is re- the religion of humanity. That's what Freemasonry is. Uh, that's what communism is. Uh, that that the, uh, the there is no faith. There's no faith in anything supernatural. There's no faith in an, in an invisible God. Uh, no adherence to religion whatsoever. Humanity is on its own, and humanity has to make uh, a, the best world for itself that it can. Uh, and uh, the to, to serve humanity is is the highest thing that you can do. The state necessarily becomes the highest of all entities. Uh, some would put a religious uh, sauce on it and say, well, to serve humanity is to serve God. See, that's what Paul VI, uh, that's what... Um, uh, what was his name? Jacques Maritain. He wrote a book called Integral Humanism, and that's essentially mm-hmm. the message, is that humanism, uh, the fault of humanism, secularism, everything, that uh, is that it's irreligious, that we can put the church at the service of humanity. That's Gaudium and Spes. That's Vatican II. Uh, the church at the service of humanity. We can take this humanity religion and Christianize it. We can baptize it. Uh, he was a great influence on Paul VI. They were intimate friends. Paul VI was a great admirer of Maritain, and really Paul VI's ideas came from Maritain. Uh, the, and that's the, the elder Maritain. The young Maritain was a great Thomist and collaborator of Garigou Lagrange, but he had a, uh, a conversion to this integral humanism in the late 1930s, and Garrigou essentially dumped him and, and, you know, just disagreed with him very deeply. Uh, but that is, that is Vatican II, uh, it, to take this, this humanity religion and baptize it. So, you know, just uh, to, to put a perspective on it. But in itself, the secularists uh, you know, really want nothing to do with that either. That's why Vatican II is falling flat on its face. Uh, it's, uh, I often compare it to you know, uh, a woman of the street uh, dressing up to please the people on the street who might pick her up, but nobody's picking her up. Uh, to the, the modernists would like to see the church in the in the clothing and outfits of the the modernist secularist world, and nobody's interested. Uh, so in any case, the the uh, that's that's what the the secularist wants to completely divorce humanity from religion. So religion, dogma, everything that that religion stands for, eternal life, uh, the next world, particular judgment, last judgment. That all has to be completely wiped away, completely eliminated from the minds of people. Um, uh, Gustav Combe, who was another uh, uh, one of these kind of people, uh, he said, here is the new catechism. Its tenets are complete. It teaches the denial of God, the closing of heaven, the rejection of all dogma, the bankruptcy of Christian ethics, belief in the excellence of nature and unlimited progress of science and the perpetuity of the human race. I mean, in, in one sentence, that's secularism. And, and it has triumphed. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, 
the whole religion, all of the religion substitutes that we have today, like uh, worrying about water and worrying about uh, the uh, the global economy, worrying about uh, global warming, uh, other other global issues, saving animals, uh, all of that. That's all uh, secularist religion substitutes, because human beings have to have a set of highest principles. It is impossible for them to think or to act without a set of ultimate highest principles. So when you dump religion, you have to put in some substitute, something whereby you decide that something is good or bad. It has to be good or bad because there's an ultimate good or bad. And and something whereby you decide that uh, that uh, what is true and what is false. See, so there are religion substitutes, and surprisingly, well, I guess not surprisingly, although they have gotten rid of religious dogma, they have replaced it with the most dogmatic system of liberalism and secularism that makes the Inquisition look like an altar boy. Uh, you know, deny some secularist principle and you're dead. The, the press will, will whip you to death. <laughs> well, if, I think you, you, you deny. You've noted, uh, you've noted that before, Your Excellency. The only thing we know is there is no absolute truth, right? <laughs> yes. But it's so funny to see to see. Uh, uh, I, I see it when I go into liberal situations where you might say something that offends their liberalism, and you can see like a gasp, and they they sit back in their chair and they gasp. That uh, some liberal dogma has been denied in front of them. It, it's it's <laughs> like they're they, they expecting them to rip their garments uh, uh, because that you cannot. The human mind cannot escape an ultimate principle, uh, both moral and intellectual. It cannot escape it, and so uh, it, there are religion substitutes. So, but anyway, that's the society that secularism wishes to establish. And it has gradually established it and is practically at the point of success now, uh, where religion has been... I mean, we saw recently what happened in Indiana, where religious liberty was was trying to... Uh, true religious liberty, that is, the, the ability to object to, the, to what is uh, an abomination against the moral law... Uh, was trying to be protected, and then when the the secularists and liberals objected, uh, they they backed up and and protect secularism and and liberalism, and trashed religion, uh, mm. and in Arkansas as well. Uh, so it, it, the there is the the tide is so strong toward secularism, and the the tide against it is very very weak, and and I'll explain that later for various reasons. Uh, the, so we're here. I mean, we are in the secularist society, and that's why we're seeing one by one and little by little, uh, and faster and faster, the last vestiges of any kind of adherence to uh, religious principle or natural law just disappear. Well, and as you say, Yersley, it's not so much a, a, an absence of religion. It's, it's, as you say, a replacement. The, the new religion is, is humanism. The secularism is a, a raising up to a deity ourselves. That we are, we are the, mm -hmm. the most important thing. Uh, we see another, uh, unfortunately, another Frenchman, 1841 to 1932, Ferdinand Buisson. Um, mm -hmm. His quote is, 
he's speaking about the future, the, the future he hopes for, truly Catholic and truly social, the future religion will substitute the salvation of society for the salvation of the individual, the redemption of all for the redemption of a few. For the vague and shadowy paradise of the hereafter, it will substitute an active and vibrant paradise, the paradise that will be created and maintained on earth by the efforts of all, by justice for all, and by love among all men. I suppose I just want to pause there for a second. Even if this was possible, this, this world he's painting, that is the active and vibrant paradise of now, I suppose, as you say, the human mind then has to ask, and then what? Sure, surely, surely that, that can't be all this is for. The, the here and now. Well, never underestimate the ability of human beings to wallow in ignorance. Uh, the, the, uh, I mean, this, if for people, it all depends on, on whether you have the virtue of faith or not. If you don't have the virtue of faith, then this sounds great. <laughs> you know, the, then what is there left except to make some noble uh, goal of, of bettering humanity? Uh, you can see that in Bergoglio. His whole religion is ecology. There's going to be some encyclical on ecology, helping the poor. Uh, the greatest evils are that the young people don't have jobs and the old people are lonely. This is, that's all secularist. That's why he's so loved. The people love him because he is a secularist. Uh, and then he denigrates dogma. He denigrates uh, observance of the moral law. Uh, mercy means sodomy, fornication, and adultery. That, that's the translation of mercy and the year of mercy. And if you read his latest bull, he actually put out a bull. Uh, on Saturday, uh, April 11th, uh, he put out a bull uh, uh, establishing the year of mercy, which will be from December 8th on, in, in a jubilee that we're supposed to be celebrating 50 years of Vatican II. You know, which has done a tremendous good for the Catholic Church. You know, all of the institutions that were uh, set up for those 2,000 years have really flourished under Vatican II these 50 years. You know, so anyway, uh, but you can—he is a secularist, uh, and uh, that's why he's the beloved and uh, darling of the press and uh, of you know, people in general. They don't go to church. But they think, you know, finally, Catholicism has come around. See, there has been, since the 18th century, this idea of transforming Catholicism into precisely what Vatican II has done to it. And that is where Catholicism accepts the principles of secularism, accepts the principles of the humanity religion, and gives it a certain spiritual flavor, elevates it to a religion in the proper sense, but is totally hand-in-hand -hand with all of its principles. So it has to dump dogma, it has to get rid of its moral codes that are offensive. The, you know, the only uh, uh, sin would be like wasting water or uh, you know, uh, not, not throwing the, your garbage into the right can. Uh, th those would be the grave sins of humanity, you know, against humanity. Uh, not giving a job to somebody who needs it or, or uh, not being a good socialist. Uh, those would be the the, uh, the great sins. Uh, so uh, that's that's what uh, I mean. This is just one author among many, many uh, in the 19th century, the 20th century, even the 18th century, 
who called for the reform of religion to conform to this humanitarian or humanity religion. As a matter of fact, the famous Ode to Joy uh, is, if you, that's what Beethoven put to music in his, uh, in his Ninth Symphony, which is, you know, of course, iconic by now. Uh, it was written by Schiller, who was uh, uh, a great uh, admirer of the French Revolution and was full of the 18th century, uh, quote-unquote, philosophy, uh, anti-Catholic philosophy. Uh, it, the words are that joy is the daughter of Elysium. Now, Elysium, for these people and for Schiller, was this world that this author that you just quoted, Buisson, a world of love, the, the civilization of love, the paradise that will be created, that's Elysium. So if you listen to the words of the tenor, who sings it very well, and, and Beethoven did a great job of putting it to music, uh, you know, great music but horrible words, uh, talk to uh, uh, von Elysium, I think that's what it is, daughter of Elysium, and joy is the, is the effect of all of this paradise. So this has been on the minds of people since the current of what we call unbelief that started really in the early uh, 17th century. Uh, it started among the upper classes who were disgusted with Protestantism in Protestant countries, and notably the English, because Protestantism became absurd. It became absurd Christianity because it was breaking up into so many different sects that the normal intelligent person said, how is this possible? How could this be Christianity where everybody's disagreeing about what you should believe? That's how unbelief came about in those, in those countries, and especially England. Uh, but in also Protestant Germany, wherever Protestantism was, you, you had a strong current of that. And then it spread to the Catholic countries, and uh, but they learned their stuff in most cases in England. Voltaire did, uh, Rousseau did. <laughs> uh, they, uh, you know, England was the the producer of all of that thought, especially for the French. But the Germans did it as well. But we should never underestimate the power of the Protestant revolt and the damage that it did to our our religion and our society. And, and the, how it is the root of really all that we're suffering today as Catholics. Now, Your Excellency, you, you noted that I'm looking at this quote by Buisson from the, with the eyes of faith, and I suppose some of our listeners might be asking, are, well, all right, Your Excellency, I'm engaging with somebody at work, I'm trying to talk about some of these things, and we come to this stopping point where they talk about, you know, working for the ideals of humanity and 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 building up a great society and leaving something great for our children. What's the pivot point? If if we can't say that they have the virtue of faith, or we don't know, for example, we don't know what 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 virtues they have. How can we take the conversation to another level, or are we sort of dead in the water because they don't have something? They don't have the ability to see something. You say don't underestimate uh, people's uh, propensity to ignorance. But let's say we think we might be working with a, a person of goodwill. How, where do you take the conversation from there? If they say, well, you know, it's about building up a, a great society. Well, uh, that, 
first of all, original sin, that human beings are incapable of building up a great society because they fall flat on their faces morally owing to original sin. Now, you have to ha have the faith to understand original sin. However, you don't have to have the faith to see that human beings, you know, wind up a human being and he falls down on his face in sin. Uh, Pascal, who's not really somebody to quote, but he did say something wise, that is, uh, that he said that as much as original sin is difficult to understand, it is more difficult to understand the human race without original sin. But why, why do human beings act so badly? I mean, animals don't do that. They follow their instincts. The, 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 all of the world and the universe follows the, the physical laws. Everything works the way it ought to work. But human beings don't. They are horrible. You just pick up the newspaper, look on the Internet and the news. What human beings do. Uh, and uh, they, they, they have this, this seed of corruption, moral corruption in them that, that leads to degradation. And that's why it needs a savior. I mean, that's the way I would start with somebody who's a, a secularist. Now, you can try all you want to make a perfect world, but you're going to fail because of original sin and the effects of original sin, which are easily seen, the effects are, originally, uh, are easily seen by someone even who doesn't have the faith. Humanity is a, is a fallen race, and it has never pulled itself up. And look at the world the way it is now. You think that, that after all of this effort by all of these secularists, that we, we live in a better world? <clears throat> that's, that's what I would say to them, uh, to, to begin anyway. I mean, they have to be taught the faith. You, you, if you deny the faith, then the state and humanity become the ultimate reality for you. See, that, that you have to believe in something, as I said. You know, there has to be some religion substitute. Uh, you, in order to be noble, you can't just be a selfish animal, as secularism really dictates. If there's no God, why don't we just become selfish animals? Why don't we you know, go out and rob little old ladies of their money? <laughs> there's no God. Why should that be a sin or a crime? there's no God, why not act like animals? So, because human beings, secularists, regard that as a little bit too much, they have to think of themselves as noble, and therefore have these noble ideals of bettering humanity. And that's their religion substitute. Well, and as you, as you say, a, a common retort might be, and I, I was having a similar conversation with someone about this the other day, so why, he said, he said I believe in humanity. And I, I stuttered a bit, because I wasn't sure if this was correct for me to say, and I thought, well, this would be good for me to ask Bishop Sanborn later this week. But I said, well, I don't believe in humanity. <laughs> um, I suppose, can we properly say, as Catholics, you're saying that we believe in humanity, or should we say that, that we only believe in a humanity that is, uh, that is allied to our Lord, that, that accepts grace and conversion and, and the true faith? Well, we do not believe in humanity. We believe <laughs> okay. in one God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, uh, and so forth. But, uh, no, we don't... Uh, humanity is not an object of our belief. There's nothing to believe about humanity. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it is 
uh, it's not going to save us. What's going to save us is is their Savior. And so we believe in the Savior, uh, but uh, we just hope that humanity will save itself or, or by the grace of God. That's all. It's more an object of hope than it is an object of faith. We don't believe in humanity. Humanity is not... You believe in something if it's going to deliver for you a salvation. See, if, if that's what to believe in something. You see, uh, uh, I, I believe in this remedy that's going to fix my cancer or something. I believe in this. I, uh, that, that's the idea of believing in something. Not, uh, to believe something or someone or, is different from to believing in someone. Or something. See, so, is humanity going to give us salvation? Uh, from the obviously, from the supernatural point of view, it, it's incapable. Even from the natural point of view, it's incapable. A totally secularist point of view, it's incapable, because humanity has proven itself to be a fallen race, a race that cannot operate correctly, a, a race that has a, a, an ability to to get itself involved in in the most inhumane and wicked things. Uh, its history is, is abominable, and even its present morality, I mean, it's obsessed with sex, totally obsessed with it. I mean, this is what we believe in, this, this uh, <laughs> you know, this planet that is obsessed with, with the lowest pleasures that even animals don't engage in. <laughs> That's the way I would approach it. Mm. Uh, or, you know, where it's constantly at war. I mean, are we going to believe in, in a humanity that produces something like the Islamic State that burns its own people to death? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, is this, is this the object? Or are we going to believe in a humanity like they have in India where they're worshipping uh, gods that have the heads of elephants? Should we believe in that, or shall we believe in the humanity uh, of China, which enslaves its people in a in an intrinsically evil system? Uh, where do you where shall we believe? You know, um, <laughs> where is it? <laughs> um, so uh, no, humanity has proven itself to be a brutal, evil. Uh, institution, we might say, or a <laughs> mob of people. It, it is not the object of any kind of hope the way it is. It's just going to get worse and worse and uh, become the way it was before the flood. And, uh, you know, it just its morality will, will just crumble. Well, if I might, if I might quote uh, Bishop Sanborn, uh, Your Excellency, uh, culture is the great teacher of minds. And if, if culture continues to reinforce secularism, that this is what's going on, I, and this is something I know you're very passionate about, not only with the seminary, but with the, the schools that you've been part of running, that if you don't take a positive, uh, if you don't take the necessary means to maintain your, your faith it, against this whole secularistic culture, over time, you are going to subconsciously accept the truths laid out for you because they're so reinforced everywhere you go, as you say. Mm-hmm. You will accept the secularism if you don't take positive means to act against it and to excise it out of your life. 
And and what are what are two or three ways that you see that traditional Catholics fail to do this on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis? I, I know we only have time for a few exorcisms, so just just six or well, you're two asking or three, for a whole <laughs> two, or, two or three, please. Well, the television set. I'll start with that. Is is uh, and I'm what I mean is like cable and bro- anything that's broadcast in any manner whatsoever is enemy number one, okay? And uh, the uh, the symbolic brick should be thrown through it, okay? Uh, the, the only thing that should be seen on the television set are things that are wholesome and correct that you would not find in anything broadcast, but uh, which you would find in certain videos. Uh, and so you would keep it for that reason, but just, you know, unhooked yourself from broadcast television and unhooked yourself even from sports and everyone's saying, oh, I can't watch the football game, which is, you know, it's like announcing that you have terminal cancer. You can't watch the football game. You might, they would, I think, take terminal cancer as an easier sentence than that. Uh, and, uh, Dare I ask uh, if attendance ever goes down on Super Bowl Sunday uh, for Matt, <laughs> Your Excellency? Say that again. I said, dare I ask if attendance ever goes down in any of the chapels that you visited on Super Bowl Sunday? Absolutely. We we would always notice that in chapels, uh, when we used to say Mass a lot in the afternoon, uh, that the attendance would be noticeably uh, way down uh, on Super Bowl Sunday because, you know, you can't miss the Super Bowl. Uh, and uh, I had a person who told me, that he couldn't come to Mass next Sunday because he had to watch the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> and I said to him, you have to come to Mass because Mass is more important than the Indianapolis 500. And he told me, well, no, I just can't do that. And he never came to Mass again thereafter. Hmm. So... Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a modern day uh, uh, sad young man who who left our Lord because he couldn't give up the possessions. It's the the modern update. You know, he couldn't give up the Indy five hundred uh, for math. That's unfortunate. All right, yeah. so we've identified television, and we'll yeah. say sport television along with that. Um, well, as number uh, well, yes. I mean, just throw throw the brick through it. Now you can't do it physically because you do have to watch the videos and the and the decent <laughs> movies. All right, so but symbolically throw throw the brick through broadcast television. Okay, that's what I mean. Just a brick. I mean, it's done. It's finished. You can't do it a little bit. It's just out of your life. Uh, two is movies. 99.9% of the movies, and that's a, a liberal estimate, today are unacceptable <laughs> for human consumption. They're dirty, 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 filthy, dirty, and they should not be seen by anybody. And so the movie theater, again, becomes a place to shut down. I mean, as far as your life, you just don't go, you don't watch them. It's just their filthy, pig-like entertainment. It's fit for pigs, but it is not Catholic or it's not fit for any human consumption, okay? Not only is are there is the dirty filth on the screen, but they speak about situations and uh, approve of situations that should not be spoken of in public, all right, and should not ever be approved. They also uh, are responsible for a, a relish 
of violence. Now, I'm not one of these people that thinks that John Wayne shooting somebody in, in the middle of the town in, in a shootout is, is bad. I mean, that's not a relish of violence. When violence was shown in movies like in, you know, like 50 or 60 years ago, it was always seen as something perhaps, you know, a little exciting because all, all conflict, is, all, all drama is conflict. Uh, but it was never seen, it was never relished. It was seen, and also the good guys always won. And so the, the, the violence was seen as a way in which to preserve order. Uh, but the, the modern idea of violence is a relish of blood and guts. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's weird and sick. It's, it, it's, it's violence for violence sake. And, uh, and that is wrong. Uh, you know, it's wrong to to relish anything that is evil. And we ordinarily apply that only to impure thoughts. But if we can relish other things that are evil, like relishing revenge upon your enemy, thinking about how I'm going to, say, let all the air out of his tires or something. Oh, that would be great. And he comes out in the morning, he can't go to work. If you relish that in your mind, you're committing a sin. And it could be a grave sin. A lot of people do that. They 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 think of taking a, some sort of violent act upon their enemies, and they relish it, and that's a sin. If you relish violence, if you relish people getting cut up, and that is a sin. And modern entertainment does that. So I would say number two, movies go. Okay. Uh, n- number three. You'll only get, uh, get one more, your <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, what should I put as number three? Uh, it's very hard. Uh, well, the, the modern press uh, and uh, information sources are very, very bad. And they are constantly bombarding us with liberal ideas, what we should think. And so now they would go away pretty much with the television set, but not, not entirely because you have the Internet. We, uh, they, they tell us what to think by the things that they glorify and the things they vilify. Uh, you know, that people who don't want to make wedding cakes for uh, same-sex marriages are bigots. They're religious bigots. And the, the people who are defending their quote-unquote rights, so, you know, these are the people that are, we should really be happy with. These are, the, all of that is done in a, a sometimes direct but mostly a subtle way. That you know somebody is glorified, somebody is vilified, and we learn from that what we should think. And in nearly all cases, we learn the wrong thing, uh, and and that is very destructive. So your your information has to be uh, any kind of addiction to normal news is very dangerous. Uh, I always say uh, I read the New York Times to find out what I shouldn't think. Uh, when, I, when you know if they are they're in favor of it, I'm against it. <laughs> Vice versa. It's a good. It's a good guide. Yeah, it's an excellent guide. As long as you take that, you pick it up. You think whatever they are in favor of, I'm against. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much how you have to look at most of the of the uh, the commentary, and even what we call right wing commentary comes from the left. And it is an indoctrination of people who are right-minded 
and who have right instincts of what of how they should be liberal on various things. The only thing that they are quote unquote conservative about in most cases is economy, and even in that they're liberal because they're in favor of what we call laissez-faire economy. That is, that there should be no control at all over economy and money and so forth. That it, it should be a free-for-all, and you, that you should be able to do whatever you please. Uh, that is what is known as conservative economics. It's actually 19th century liberalism. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that's the only thing they're conservative about. And then, of course, tax cuts, which are like the the, the first commandment of, of <laughs> conservatives. On everything else, they're liberal. They cave in on everything. All of the mm-hmm. social issues, they're what they call social issues. They're liberal on. You know, so uh, so they that they are actually more pernicious because people watch them, say like Fox. People watch them in order to find out what I should think because these are the conservatives. That <laughs> it, it is just an indoctrination and in everything false and wrong. Well, uh, and so I, uh, you've identified these three things directly, and I think this this goes back again to secularism. That you know you you don't realize it, but when you step back and and you listen to His Excellency pinpoint these three things, that these are working in concert with each other, that the media works in concert with, with television, with movies, that this isn't, uh, you know, you'd like to think it's all an accident, but there is, this is a coordinated effort. It couldn't, things are not accidentally successful, or very rarely they are. Uh, they're usually well-coordinated and well-planned. And if we look at all, all of this that's going on, we have to, we have to see, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, but we have to see a, a plan behind it. Uh, this is, this is what, what secularism brings us, and it has to reinforce its paradigm through all of its tentacles. And you've just talked about three, and I, I did limit you to that, so uh, I appreciate that, Your Excellency. Oh, I could give you like a top ten. <laughs> well, we could we could do an episode. We could do an episode on that. The obloquy. Yeah, Bishop Sanborn's uh, top ten. Right. <laughs> we'll do that. So we're here, as you say, secularism, um, because the final whatever was remaining, and this were all already they were in ruins at the time of World War One. You could say, or just shadows of what they used to be. If we think about the territory that that the Emperor Charles reigned over as the last Holy Road Emperor. It was a shadow of what, what he'd had before. But I want to I wanna use as our jumping off point two quotes from an American president, <clears throat> two, I'm sorry, two American presidents, which speak to this idea of what, of what we've been sold uh, on what uh, World War I was and, and World War II subsequently. The, wor- the world was to be made safe for democracy by this war. And Franklin Roosevelt recall uh, saying that America was the arsenal of democracy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, what what is democracy the code word for? Because that's that's ultimately what's going on here. I think this is a code word. Well, I, I don't know if it's a code word, but it is. It is the only system that works in the Rousseauian. That means Jean Jacques Rousseau uh, revolutionist system. See, if the, if the general will of the people is the voice of God, or the voice, if there is no God, you know, the, the, 
the voice of right and wrong, if they have the power, if they have the civil political power, then democracy is the only system that is correct. And anything else is tyranny. See, so a monarchy is uh, one man deciding what we should do. Uh, that That is tyrannical in its very notion. See, so there was, in the 19th century, this push constantly toward democracy because it's the only thing that works in the Rousseauian system, the revolutionist system. Uh, That's something to understand. So anything non-democratic is necessarily tyrannical. And that's what you get from the media. You see, uh, that's, that's that's the common... Uh, idea. In fact, democracy is a horrible form of government. <laughs> if you look at the Greek philosophers and the history of democracy, it's absolutely horrible. Uh, but the uh, and also it only works, quote unquote, in something like the Athenian state, where uh, you know you have one city and everyone is, is is supposed to come to the meeting, and where you have a relatively limited. Maybe you have, you know, at the most twenty five thousand people living in the city. It's it's ridiculous in a in a large republic. I mean, it's absolutely stupid. Uh, uh, And uh, so, in any case, but Demos was much closer to a neighborhood uh, in 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 our conception than 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 even uh, what we're used to today. So yes. So the uh, but in any case. It's the only thing that works. And, you know, democracy, it's absurd because in anything that is a large country, uh, there is always, as Aristotle says, an oligarchy that is formed. That is a, a, a select few who are running the country. The idea that people are really having their will done in Washington is an absurdity. Uh, it, it is it just doesn't happen. There is a there is a an, a select few who run the country, and the the legislature gives the rubber stamp to it. Uh, and you can see that in the way laws are made. And all. Uh, so uh, that that's that's why uh, the all of these new worldists and all had to protect democracy, and the. Uh, Wilson had to give some sort of motive to the Americans to go and, and shed their blood over in Europe. Uh, so the idea was that, well, the, the German Kaiser is going to come and conquer us and overthrow our government and we'll have a monarchy. That, I mean, that's the implication. Uh, the, the only thing that would have happened if Germany had won, is that they would have happily overthrown that horrid Third Republic in France and probably restored the monarchy to France. Uh, uh, Probably the Germans would have done that in a puppet government ruled from Berlin. (laughs) And that... (laughs) Sorry to say, but that would have been a wonderful thing for France. (laughs) The the dumping of of the Third Republic... And it's replacement by some monarchical system, and they had plenty of you know history of monarchy in France. And and by the way, France always flourished under its monarchs, uh, and always did badly under its republics. Uh, uh, the uh, but in any case, that's what would have happened, uh, and uh, that the essentially conservative governments uh, of Germany and Austria 
morally and politically conservative governments uh, and customs of those countries and Russia, and I'm sorry, Russia was on the other side, uh, would have prevailed. If Germany and Austria had prevailed in that war, their their whole outlook on life and the way of doing things would have prevailed. And France's government would have collapsed uh, to, you know, the applause of many. And, and, uh, the, and what would have been in Russia's best interest is that it had, uh, if it had allied itself with Austria and Germany, uh, which was the suggestion of the Kaiser, that it would have preserved the traditional way of life in Europe instead of siding with the, with the uh, harlot, uh, that is the, the French revolutionary harlot, Marianne, uh, siding with her uh, and, and overrunning Europe with all of the false ideas of the French Revolution. Hmm. Well, and as you say, once that uh, defeat occurs, the world has been made safe for democracy, the last vestiges of the Catholic order have been overthrown, you need to preserve your new world order. And one of the first attempts at this, it failed, but the first attempt was the the League of Nations. And I think it's important to to just focus on two articles to, again, see the substitution. We're going to get rid of Catholicism, but we understand that Catholicism occupied a useful place, so we're going to usurp to ourselves those rights. In the first article, it says the civilized people conclude among themselves a political, economic, and intellectual union under the name of League of Nations. And and so they're simply just asserting it. We are going to be we're going to have this authority when they really don't have any reason to do that. And in Article 12, the international parliament shall itself choose the place of its meetings, the city which shall become the capital of the world, its territory being internationalized. And again, a, a very low copy, if we could even say, of, of what Rome is, that Rome is this uh, temporal power, which would have been owned by the Pope, and that it is a worldwide city. All Catholics all over the world can look to it as, as an inspiration and as a, a, a locus. And that mm-hmm. the, the, the League of Nations knows this. The, basically, the, the church has laid the blueprint for how to run a worldwide organization. And so they say, okay, well, we're going to dump the church, but let's keep some of these blueprints and, and use it for ourselves. And they fail miserably in their first round, obviously. Um, why does the League of Nations fail so miserably, Your Excellency? Well, why does the UN fail so miserably? <laughs> right. Uh, because uh, nation is as strong as family. There is something natural that you you favor your own family, you favor your own, your own nation, because your uh, general welfare, even just secular welfare, is very much tied up in your nation. It's not tied up in Uganda. You know, what happens in Uganda really doesn't bother us or, or doesn't affect us, or what happens even in France doesn't affect us. But when there is a whole system of, of connections, uh, economic connections and cultural connections, language connections, and all of those things make for a very tight bond among people of the same nation. And... To, to put them in a league of nations is unnatural. The, uh, the, it's just not natural for, for that to operate. Uh, there is, there's no, it's contrary to nature that, that the whole world should be uh, of interest to, to people in a single nation. 
uh, and and it flopped uh, for that reason. Just just crashed on its face because nations will will seek their own interests, and with as any conflict of interest between this you know League of Nations or United Nations and its own interests, it will just repudiate the League or the you know whatever uh, and follow its own interests. A great example of that was the Iraq War uh, after uh, 9-11. The United Nations would not approve of the invasion of Iraq. And Bush said, well, tough luck, we're going to invade Iraq. And, of course, that was has been a wonderful success, as everybody knows. You know, establishing <laughs> democracy there and a pro-American government, you know, that's all allied with Iran and everything else. Uh, and Shiites and whatnot. Uh, I mean, that's just been a, a political success from A to Z. After so many thousands of our men died and were maimed there, now it goes back to something worse than it was to begin with and could easily be prey to any kind of aberration uh, in, uh, you know, who knows what political life remains for them or what kind uh, but and that's what Bush did. He said, tough luck, we're doing it anyway. Uh, it, that has happened in many cases over the, you know, since 1945 or whenever the uh, United Nations was established. Uh, League of Nations as well. It was, was uh, it, it didn't lift a finger against Mussolini in, uh, in, um, in his invasion of Ethiopia. It put some sanctions on Italy, but, you know, it was nothing to speak of. Uh, and uh, really did not preserve the peace. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> preserving the peace. Uh, the, it, uh, under the, the watch of the League of Nations, the worst war in, in the history of the planet took place. <laughs> and and I, I wouldn't be uh, you know, surprised to see the same thing happen under the watch of the United Nations. I mean, it's essentially powerless because there's no motive. I mean, they have these peacekeepers that go in and all, but they have no motive to fight. I mean, to give your life for something, what you know, for some some institution in New York City, <laughs> of a bunch of fat diplomats that sit around and talk about nothing. I mean, what a useless organization that just spends money and is exempt from from parking laws in New York's New York City. <laughs> Legendary. Oh yes. Uh no, it, it is it's a useless thing because it's unnatural, it has no purpose or function. It, uh nations will follow their own interests. All diplomacy is based on interests. It's not based on anything altruistic. It's based on national interests. And uh so uh and then it, you know it's it, it's well, it's an absurd situation. Well, and as nationalism is ultimately, you know, what kills the League of Nations. Interestingly enough, they're trying to have an internationalism without something that can super that can transcend that. That that was the advantage of the church. The church was able to transcend uh, international boundaries because it had this common belief. Whereas League of Nations simply asserted that it was uh, acting on behalf of uh, mankind. There's a quote from from Woodrow Wilson that says that uh, that Christianity has not succeeded in uniting. Uh, the exact quote is, Christianity has not succeeded in uniting peoples. We will succeed, I hope, by the League of Nations. Uh, yes. But realistically, uh, 
nationalism overcomes this because they're, they have no authority. And as you say, what's the compulsion, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to defend? Uh, and, and, and you just have this large organization that exists to exist because it has no end uh, in itself. Well, look at the European Union. I mean, that's a joke. It's just a joke. <laughs> All those countries act independently. Uh, of of that union, I mean, they, they they're still their own selves. It's not as if uh, the difference between France and Germany is like the difference between Georgia and South Carolina. <laughs> well, this, it's uh, the European Union is just a replacement Holy Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know, that's what they're they're again uh, aspiring to something that has already happened and was more successful than they could ever hope to be. Um, I, one of the things that you, you wrote about that I thought was maybe the, the most interesting part of this perspective and, and maybe a, a good way to conclude our episode today is uh, your, you, you quoted Father Fahey, or not exactly quoted, but you referred to Father Fahey saying that World War II was fought over who would be the temporal messiahs of the human race, the Germans or the Jews. And I thought this was really, really a fascinating and um, interesting take on on World War II, I think we can always come to these world conflicts and, and look at all these different causes, secondary causes, et cetera. But I think this is a really important perspective for Catholics to look at. And can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yes, the uh, Hitlerism was essentially the exaltation of the German race as the uh, savior of humanity, that, that every place will become Germany or, or, you know, it will be under German domination and, and, uh, that the Germans have this vocation because they're superior to, uh, rule the world. And the, uh, what was in their way was the, uh, the liberal Western world, which was dominated to a great extent economically, especially by Jews. Uh, and uh, culturally also by Jews. Uh, if we look at entertainment, for example, like Hollywood and all. Uh, and uh, so that's why they were at odds, uh, and uh, that's why uh, influential Jews uh, already went to uh, Churchill, for example, in the 1930s, uh, trying to set him up as a uh, because he was so pro-war, even though he had been very, very anti-Jewish in uh, 15 years before in some articles in the London Times about the uh, the Bolshevist Jewish threat, and uh, very explicit. But he was on his uppers in 1935-36, uh, in, uh, and they essentially dug him up to be a, a leader of England uh, in order to have a pro-war attitude against Germany, because they they saw, obviously, a major threat from Germany, even before uh, there was any extermination of Jews in Germany, just that Germany would would undo their uh, Western liberal empire that they built up in in various ways, in in economics and and in entertainment, uh, the press, and and even clothing, and various things that they, they dominated in. Uh, that this would be a, a major, major threat to them. And so uh, they enlisted the, uh, the Western governments to, um, to stand up to Hitler. Uh, the, um, uh, so that, that was uh, the, the, 
uh, Hitler was a, a, a relic of the 19th century nationalism. Uh, it was something that was already out of date by then uh, and was bound to fail anyway because it was already out of date. What was in full gear was internationalism. And so it was a, a, a war really between national socialism and internationalist socialism, which we are living under today. Uh, and so that, that's, uh, you know, a perspective about World War II. But that's what Father Fahey said, uh, that, that, was the, uh, that this was a, a real struggle of German against Jew, uh, and uh, that, that each side, you know, rallied to itself certain elements uh, in order to overcome the other. Well, this, so then uh, by, that, by that, can we say that, that the, 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 the Jews then won that war? I would say yes. I mean, they they are they have become very powerful, if not politically, they have become very powerful by influence. Uh, the press is is virtually entirely in their hands. Entertainment is entirely in their hands. Uh, right there, uh, uh, banking is entirely in their hands. I mean, uh, you know, virtually. Uh, so the the uh, so they administer a great deal of influence over governments uh, by. The, the enormous wealth that they possess and the ability to to steer things one way or the other, according to that. Uh, and so uh, I think internationalist socialism was was uh, the victor. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, yes, Jews play a very prominent part in internationalist socialism. But uh, I always say World War II was uh, King Kong versus Godzilla in the sense that there was there was no side that you could really be happy with. I mean, if the Germans had <laughs> been victorious, uh, it, it would have been hell on earth. <laughs> Hitler, drunk with victory, would have inflicted upon the whole world uh, a, a, a hellish regime. Uh, so, I mean, there was nothing to be excited about. <laughs> uh, and at least in this regime that we have, uh, the Catholic Church uh, in this situation, by that I mean traditionalists, are able to function quite freely. You know, uh, we, we are not hampered, we are not hindered in, in getting our message out or in practicing our faith. I mean, that, that, is, that is one uh, good aspect, I think, uh, of what has happened. Uh, whereas in the 19th century, a lot of the laws against the church actually hindered the church a great deal. Uh, and uh, whereas right now we have absolutely no constraints upon us uh, in that in that uh, regard. So uh, if if Hitler had won, uh, the Catholic he was very pro-modernist, by the way. He was extremely anti-Catholic. Uh, and uh, he would have persecuted the Catholic Church a great deal. Uh, we would have been muffled. Uh, we would have been uh, something like the the English Catholic priests saying mass in people's homes and and hiding in them, and perhaps being even put to death. Well, I suppose so, that's uh, one one reason we can be grateful anyway <laughs> for for what an incredible disaster. Yes. Yes, but it has its silver lining, uh, that there is a, a general free-for-all uh, from the point of view of religion and morals uh, that would not have happened under Hitler at all.
all, but the the religion and moral that he would have imposed uh, would, would have been absolutely ghastly, uh, and it would have been a very very strict and oppressive regime. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, as unhappy as we are with what we have, we still Catholics can move around and and uh, do what they have to do uh, without any kind of restriction at all. Uh, so. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that Root of the Rod is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. You can also, if you have any questions, follow-up questions for His Excellency, or things that you'd like us to see, uh, like us to cover in, in the following episodes. Obviously, we're going to follow on and talk about World War II um, and uh, the people who, the puppet masters who are behind everything that happened in World War One and World War II, we'll, we'll discuss in more detail in a following episode. If you want to ask leading questions, you're welcome to do so. You can write to rootoftherot at truerestoration.org. Uh, Your Excellency, Lentz over at the seminary, uh, what's, what's the latest down there? <laughs> the latest is pigs. Pigs. We have in our in our I call it our backyard, our, our perhaps twenty acres behind the seminary. We have uh, wild boars that are coming in and looking for food. So they, with their snouts, they turn over the soil and are are making a mess of our our backyard. And uh, so that's our our main event right now is pigs. <laughs> So we're okay. trying to figure out ways of getting rid of the pigs. So are you you going to bring that's, in Father, that's our Father, excitement for right now. Are you going to bring in Father Larrabee and his guns to uh to take care of the the, the pig problem back there? Well, we we two seminarians uh, uh actually were out uh shooting them last night uh and uh but they missed. <laughs> <laughs> uh they uh had a No a, mar- no marksmanship classes at the seminary alas. Well, I don't know what happened, but I heard the shots go off, uh, and uh, it was at quarter to three in the morning, and uh, so it was enough to wake me up. The, the cat woke up too, and you know his ears were perked toward the uh, the uh, the shots, but uh, nothing. I, I took a walk this morning, uh, hoping to see the carcass of a pig. And uh, nothing was there, so uh, I I was disappointed. And they said yes, they missed. So we'll we'll so, we'll we'll pray for the seminarians to have uh, better marksmanship uh, before our next episode, Your Excellency. <laughs> yes. So, uh, but the seminar we're on vacation now, so it's really very calm. Uh, so, uh, but uh, no, I always say nothing really happens here, which is the way it should be. Indeed. Um, well, it, again, thank you for coming on and filling in today for Root of the Rot. We look forward to having you on our, our next episode, and thanks so much for your time, Your Excellency. All right. Thank you. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.